Today's first reading is from Acts 11, verses 15 to 18. Peter said, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel is written in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, beginning at the first verse. Glory be to you, O Christ. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Traconitus, and Lysantius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics to share with those who have none, and whoever has food, is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herod Eus, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when John also, Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Remaining standing, let's pray. Father, open our eyes to see Jesus this morning and open our hearts to receive him. We ask this in his glorious name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> John the Baptist, it is my privilege and challenge to preach on John the Baptist this morning. And John the Baptist is a singular character in history. His life purpose was declared before he was even conceived. He was to prepare the way of the Lord. Imagine being a kid, growing up, knowing that this is your task, your singular task. Your purpose in life is to declare and prepare the way of the Lord. It'd be incredibly easy to grow up in that context feeling either extremely anxious or extremely self-important. After all, not everyone's father gets to have an angelic visitation informing him of your birth and purpose. Not everyone is a miracle baby born to a woman well past childbearing years. Not everyone is the topic of conversation among the entire region at eight days old, as everybody is asking, what are you going to become? We're working through the Gospel of Luke this year. And in this season of Epiphany, we're looking at the continued revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And here in Luke chapter 3, we have this story of John the Baptist. And it's a well-known story. It appears in all four Gospels to different, with slightly different takes. But Luke sets it up differently than all the others. Because we already know a fair bit about John. We know who his parents are from the first chapter of Luke, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We know the story of his miraculous conception, and we know his father's prophecies over him when he was born. And so the pressure on John as he grew to live into these prophecies could have been intense. But for two things. John had parents who were each filled with the Holy Spirit. And this was before the Spirit was given at Pentecost 
kind of abundantly, it was given to each person or to specific people individually for a specific purpose. And both Elizabeth and Zechariah are described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. And John's parents, in their wisdom and in their attentiveness to the Spirit, have raised him in the wilderness, away from all the attention. You can imagine his priestly father, Zechariah, pouring over the scriptures with him, teaching him the words of Isaiah and the prophets. You can imagine John learning the story of the Hebrew people crossing over the River Jordan, the one that he grew up by, into the land of promise. You can imagine John's mother, Elizabeth, telling him of that day, that exciting day, when her relative Mary came to visit, and how John, barely into his third trimester of life, was the very first person to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus, barely in his first trimester of life at the time. How John leapt for joy in the womb, and how that movement enabled Elizabeth to recognize Jesus too. How the prophecy of John preparing the way had thus already begun before he was even born. And so John grew up in the wilderness, raised by these loving, spirit-filled people, and strong himself in the Holy Spirit, Luke says, until the day when the word of the Lord finally came to him at age 30. At last, he must have thought, at last I get to fulfill my purpose. And he, versed in the scriptures, growing up, filled with the Holy Spirit, knew exactly what to say. You brood of vipers, repent! Repent and be baptized. And then prove that you mean it. Don't assume that your religious heritage is enough. He shouts at them, echoing Isaiah and Micah and Hosea and so many of the prophets who said over and over, God doesn't care about your empty worship practices. God cares about justice. God cares about love for neighbors. It's not enough to be brought up in a religious home. You have to turn to God fully over and over and over with your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Turn back, John says. Come back to God. Do the things God loves. Care for the poor. Uphold the cause of the widow and the orphan. Seek justice for the oppressed. It's the same message that has been given over and over through the Old Testament, through the prophets. This is how you show your love for God, by loving the things God loves. Don't rely on your religious upbringing. That ain't worth a thing. And then to emphasize this, John does something that the prophets before him never did. Something that actually could have been seen as an insult in his day. He baptized them. Baptism for us is not an insult. It's a profound rite that Christians have practiced for 2,000 years. But the Jews didn't practice baptism, not at that time and not like this. Ceremonial cleansing before temple worship, yes. But the closest thing to baptism was for proselytes, non-Jews, who wanted to convert to Judaism, and they might immerse themselves in water. And so for John to baptize Jews 
was to tell him essentially that their Jewish heritage, their coveted identity as the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not matter, did not mean anything. Their only approach to God was through repentance, through the River Jordan, as if they needed to convert to Judaism all over again and re-enter the promised land, and this time to do it right. You brood of vipers, this wilderness man shouts at them, repent and be baptized. And rather than being offended, the crowd goes wild. Rather than turning on him, they love it. This new thing that John is doing, insults and all. His fire and brimstone message is a smash hit. They all flock to him in droves. They come out from the towns and the villages, not just regular practicing Jews, but outcasts, tax collectors, soldiers even, all eager to hear what he had to say to them, how they could repent, how they could change, how they could prepare for the coming kingdom, a kingdom that he says is just around the corner. And the movement grows and it spreads. And John's popularity grows with it. And he is huge. He's known throughout the, world, the land with disciples and followers of his own. His influence has grown to the point that political leaders fear him. Historian Josephus, writing separately from the Bible, tells how Herod Antipas feared John and considered, considered him a political enemy because he might raise a rebellion that would come against him. And so Herod, in his fear and rage, locks up John for saying the wrong thing. And then when he kills him later on, and shortly after that loses a war, Josephus records that all the people believe it's God's judgment on Herod for killing their beloved prophet. So it isn't surprising that people begin wondering and murmuring and questioning as John's movement is growing. Who is this? The question goes everywhere, reaching even the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple. Who is this? Who is he? He's clearly a prophet that they haven't seen in centuries. His words ring with authority and power and truth. And he's strange and wild and powerful and exciting. And pretty soon the rumors start circulating. Messiah, is it he? Is he the one we've been waiting for? Is he the one who's going to overthrow Rome and bring in the new Jewish nation? Is it he? Put yourself in John's place for a moment. Surrounded by this excited crowd, people hanging on your every word, Knowing that what you say they will do. Oh, that's power. And he must have been tempted to stay in that spotlight. To enjoy people thinking, he might be the Messiah. Maybe to drag it out a little bit. To let them wonder. To use this influence and power, not for his gain, but for good. Maybe a small voice in him even whispered, that they were right. Maybe he was the, the Messiah. Maybe he could bring about this revolution and turn it all around. I wonder 
if before Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, there was John's temptation in the wilderness. But John knows his purpose, and he has been raised knowing his purpose. And I think this is where those years of wilderness training, the years of dwelling in the Spirit, the years of listening to Spirit-filled people in his life bear fruit for John because he doesn't walk that path with all the heartbreak that it would entail. He doesn't say yes to the power of seduction, the seduction of power, yes to the good that he might be able to accomplish through his own means. He holds to the purpose that he was given as an infant to prepare the way of the Lord, to make clear his path. And so he tells them, no, I am not the Messiah. You guys have no idea. I might seem like the right type to you, but I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I have words and I have water. He's got the Holy Spirit and fire. And he's coming. He's coming and he's going to rid the world of evil in fire and judgment. And he's going to bring righteousness once and for all. You guys, don't look at me. Look for him. Look for him. And then, and then, he appeared. Luke's story breaks, or Luke's gospel breaks up the story here. Luke is a beautiful storyteller, and he wants his audience to focus on one person at a time. And so he tells the entire story of John before moving to Jesus, including his death. He wants the focus off John when it comes to Jesus, which is exactly what John would have wanted too. And so the baptism of Jesus for Luke comes after his recounting of the death of John at the hands of Herod. But we know from other Gospels that John's death occurs later, sometime later. And that somewhere as John was baptizing in the midst of this excited, energetic crowd that surrounds him, Jesus slips in. Physically, he probably didn't stand out in the slightest. The prophet Isaiah tells us that Messiah, the Messiah had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. John seemed far more likely a candidate for Messiah than Jesus, than this man just joining in with the crowds wanting to be baptized. Only he isn't just like the rest of the crowd. And although Luke, in Luke's account, John the Baptist doesn't seem to notice, in the Gospel of Matthew, John spots Jesus a mile away. Because John, after all, has been living in this beautiful upward spiral of the Spirit that James spoke of a couple weeks ago. A lifelong attentiveness to the Spirit has left him uniquely ready to recognize Jesus. As unassuming as he seems. Because this is what the Spirit does. He opens our eyes to see Jesus. And so John knows, better than anyone there, who this quiet man, who looks just like the rest of the crowd, actually is. The Messiah, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. He has come. There are beautiful sermons preached 
on the baptism of Jesus and its significance. The sinless one stepping into the water with sinful humanity. But that is a story for another time. Because I think the Holy Spirit has something else for us this morning. Every single person in this story was looking for the coming of the Messiah. The crowds, the soldiers, the tax collectors and Pharisees and scribes, all of them were on the lookout for Jesus. I don't know about you, but I too am on the lookout for Jesus, for his coming again. And I know that his coming is described as the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, the day of judgment, that all of John's words about chaff and fire and winnowing, they're all going to be a part of it. And I know that there are so many things in my life that need to be burned away, eradicated, the selfish parts that need to be destroyed before the holiness of God. But I also know that when he comes, we will see him, we will see Jesus, the Messiah, and that his coming will be worth it, will be worth all the pain and all the sorrow and all the waiting and uncertainty, that when he comes, when Messiah comes around the corner, it will be the restoration and fulfillment of all things, the dawn breaking, the sun shining. It will be spring after a long winter, the waking after a bad dream. It will be tones that make the heart rejoice when love long lost is found. The long-awaited coming of Jesus will be worth everything. And meanwhile, meanwhile, we can prepare our hearts to see him, just like John did. We can practice repentance, not just once, but continually, opening ourselves to the Spirit's still small voice in us, pointing out the obstacles in the way of God coming to us fully, allowing us to offer them to him and to get rid of them, in repentance, clearing the path of any obstacles that may prevent us from seeing Jesus. And as we practice this repentance, as we listen to the Spirit, we begin to see Jesus around us, in the hurting one in the midst of the crowd, unassuming, maybe quiet, not saying anything, maybe shouting in pain, maybe needing that extra shirt, that we have lying around, or that extra bit of food. We begin to see Jesus in the faces of those lying on the pavement, wrapped in a dirty sleeping bag with cardboard scattered around. We begin to see him in those wandering in the middle of the road, high on the only escape that they can find from their pain. We begin to see him in the hospital alone without a friend, in prison, alone, without hope. And as we see him, we can serve him. We can come to him in love, and we can offer up all that we have. And as we do, as we see Jesus, we join with John in preparing his way to come again and in making his paths straight. 
So open our eyes, Lord, that we may see you. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.